0: Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! (laughs) If you would please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We will be spending our time focusing on Matthew chapter 1 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, you'll find Matthew chapter 1 on page 1025. Matthew chapter 1. Did you know that looking into our family trees and into our genealogical records has become, over the last decade, a multi billion dollar industry? How familiar are you with your ancestry? Do you know who formed your line? Do you know who those people are who are responsible for bringing you here? Does anyone in here have anyone really cool in their ancestry? Yeah. <laughs> William the Conqueror. William the Conqueror. That is, that's really cool. Now, you don't have to put your hands up for this one, but does anyone have any really embarrassing people in your William line? The William the Conqueror. So William the Conqueror kind of fits both fronts. William the Conqueror. Perhaps if you looked through your line, you'd find that you descend from European peasants. Maybe you descend from knights. Maybe you descend from royalty. My children have ancestors that were samurai. That, to me, is the coolest thing in the world. Maybe you truly are descended from that prince who keeps emailing you, telling you that he's got an inheritance for you. I learned one time when I was at the mall <clears throat> that uh, supposedly the DuBay clan includes—I <clears throat> don't know what's going on here—includes <clears throat> France's first Supreme Court judge. I bought that information for nineteen ninety-nine, so I don't know how true it is. <clears throat> <laughs> but. If you did do a deep dive into your line, you would probably find people that make you proud and you would probably find people that embarrassing, embarrass you. Uh, the stats from Ancestry.com say that one in five people who go looking for their ancestry or looking for some person in their line uh, find some people that are deeply immoral, who did things that were illegal, who did things that were embarrassing, and this usually causes the person who's looking some deep range of emotions from, <laughs> that's cool. All the way to, who am I? When your future descendants look back on you, what will they see? Will you be the embarrassing person in their line? Or will you be the one that they're proud of? It won't be difficult because you know your great-grandchildren are going to get a look at your Facebook accounts. (laughs) But we can't check the Facebook account of Jesus, can we? But Matthew does leave us a genealogical record. The family tree of the babe in the manger. And it is quite interesting. It's not what one would expect from the line of Emmanuel, God with us. From whom did Jesus descend? Where did he come from? How did God bring him to the earth? It all begins, in creation anyway, with our common ancestors. The two who seriously messed everything up for all of us. The two who are a part of every single one of our family trees, Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve, they had it so good. They lived without sin in a garden full of productivity trees easily grew and provided this delicious food and the ground was easy to till and the work of tending the garden that they lived in was one of joy and it was one of meaning it was only it was the only time in creation's history when all relationships were problem free don't we wish we could go back to that husband and wife problem free Humans and animals, problem-free. Humans and God, the God who created them, the God in whom we found the pinnacle of our joy. This relationship was also, you guessed it, problem-free as God himself dwelt in the garden with us. But it all changed, however, when the crafty and cunning serpent tempted Eve to abandon her trust in God, instead placing it where? In herself. You think you are joyful with God at the helm, Eve? He is holding you back from an even greater joy, Eve. The joy of living life as your own master, Eve. With your eyes open. If you eat from the fruit of the tree, with your eyes open, you will be like God and then you will better know how to govern your own life, Eve. Isn't that what you want? And with that, Eve ate of the fruit of the one tree in the garden that God told her not to eat of. And then she handed some to her husband Adam who for some reason, unbeknownst to me, ate it as well. And sin entered the picture and nothing has been the same ever since. We were banished from his presence Part of that is God's mercy because we couldn't stay due to our sin and because God is so supremely holy, His holiness would have destroyed us had we stayed in His presence. But also because it was a punishment, a punishment for sin, a punishment for disobedience, a punishment for man trying to live and be like God. And this is the reason for all the evil that we see around us. It is a result of their disobedience. And you know what? God would have been totally justified in wiping all of it out and either starting over or forgetting about the whole thing. It was pretty early in the process, but he didn't. He did something unexpected. He promised hope, he promised to fix the situation that had arisen because of Adam and Eve's sin. He, for, he promised to fix the situation that had brought Adam and Eve shame, that had brought them separation, and one that they were probably regretting quite deeply. The Lord said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field on your body. Belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So right in the beginning, in the midst of the curses of God, upon the disobedience of Adam, Eve, and the serpent, God promises an offspring that will arise from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, dealing a death blow to him and his work. But who would this offspring be? Where would he come from? How would God bring it all about? And this morning we will see Five things. He would bring about this offspring through promises faithfully maintained, gracious formation, gracious purpose, gracious preservation, and the virgin's conception. Take a look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So in beginning his genealogy, he starts with two names, David and Abraham. So what's Matthew telling us here right from the outset of his gospel? He is presenting Jesus to his readers as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes, all of Israel's prophecies, all of Israel's dreams. And not only that, he is presenting Jesus as the one who will bring the blessings of God to the entire world. All in one verse. Matthew is introducing us to the king. But why start with a genealogy? Long lists of names. It's pretty exciting for us, isn't it? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is, genealogies were given in this day to signal that the one being written about was not some sort of mythical hero. It's not one of the Greek gods. This isn't Hercules we're talking about. We're not talking about someone who is not real. When you put a genealogy in there, there, you are saying this person breathed the air we breathe. This person walked the earth that we walked. The person that we are going to be discussing is a historical reality. He was here. Jesus is a historical figure, Matthew is saying. Second... <clears throat> genealogies for the Jews weren't boring. Each name had a story. And one could, if there were heroes in their line, take pride in their lineage. Or if there were cowards and monsters, they could seek to correct the past indiscretions of their line. They could change their narrative. So as we look through the genealogy of Jesus, we will actually be quite amazed because we will say to ourselves, God used Them? And they did what? The Messiah came from who? Wow. All praise be to the God who authors and executes such a wonderful plan of redemption. All praise be to the God who remained faithful to this plan and faithful to this promise. All praise be to the God who is determined to save his people from their sins. You see, the promise in Genesis 3 was actually quite general. It's very broad. There is one who is coming who will deal a crushing blow to Satan and all he is endeavoring to accomplish in this world, which is death and hell for all of mankind. But God begins in Genesis chapter 12 to narrow the promise a little bit when he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. And there we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen to this, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, the genealogy of Jesus Christ can be traced all the way back to the founding father of Israel. The one to whom God made a promise to bless every single family on the face of the earth. In Genesis 22, God gives the answer to this question. How will God bless all the families of the earth through Abraham? Genesis 22:18, 18, he says, in your offspring." In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And who is this offspring? The Apostle Paul clarifies it for us in Galatians chapter 3 where he says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus... The son of Abraham is the offspring through whom all of the nations, all of the families on earth will be blessed. And designating Jesus as the son of Abraham right at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew is Matthew's way of saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Jesus brings the blessing. Jesus is the blessing. He is the provision of God. He is the offspring of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent. He is the one that is a blessing to the whole earth, both Jew and Gentile. But Matthew doesn't stop there. He also writes that Jesus is the son of David. The son of David. That is no small or inconsequential title. It was a big deal. The people of Israel knew the promises that God had given to their greatest king, David. And notice what the text says. He says that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. The Israelites knew that God had given David a promise way back in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16. God said to David, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established for how long? Forever. And this this promise was the backbone of prophetic announcements. This promise was praised by the psalmists. Listen to Psalm 89. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said... Steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. He goes on in verse 29. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. And again... In 33 to 37, he says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And in Psalm 132, as the nation of Israel ascended to the temple in worship, Psalm 132 is a psalm of ascent, one that they would sing as they went to the temple. It says in verse 11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. This was an opportunity for Israel to praise Yahweh because they knew that he would remain faithful to the promises that he made to their great king David. And this promise, like I said, formed the backbone of prophetic confidence. Listen to Isaiah in chapter 11. There shall come forth, from, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And it wasn't just Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 1 to 5. It was also Jeremiah, chapter 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he, shall, he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There are others, but I think the picture is quite clear. There is coming a son of David who will rule on the throne of David forever. And Matthew applies this title, the son of David, to Jesus Christ. And others in Israel did in this day as well. In Mark 10, you see a blind beggar named Bartimaeus who is hearing that Jesus is coming down the street and he yells out, son of David, have mercy on me. This beggar knows what he's saying. King Jesus, you're here. I know it's you, the one in whom all our hopes are pinned. All our hopes are in you. You are the fulfillment of the promises of God to us. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, the king promised to Israel, has come. So God made promises to Abraham and to David. And the promises made to both have been faithfully fulfilled by God in the coming of Jesus Christ. The blessing to all the nations and families of the earth and the blessing of a promised king coming to Israel who would reign on the throne of David forever, it all finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And these promises are amazing. Their fulfillment is spectacular, but the people through whom God brought them about... Highly unexpected. Take a look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 to 6. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. The second thing I want you to see as we look through this, is the gracious formation of a people through whom God begins to bring the Messiah. I mean, this line is full of unexpected people. You know who Isaac is? Isaac is the miracle child who was born to a 99-year-old woman. Unexpected. After Abraham had a son with his maidservant Ishmael, a son that he thought God would work through to bring his promise God said, I'm not working through him. You will have a son that comes from your own loins, Sarah. And Isaac is the blessing of God to Sarah, the 99-year-old woman. And then you've got Jacob. Jacob shouldn't be the one that God worked through. In this day, you work through the firstborn son. And yet, here is Jacob that God had promised that he would work through him, the secondborn son, the son who is not the conventional son to be worked through. And Jacob got this blessing from his father, not by being honest and forthright. He got it through lying and through cheating his father into blessing him. Unexpected. Then you've got Judah and his brothers. Remember Judah and his brothers? Judah and his brothers are the ones who plotted to kill their own brother, Joseph. Because they were jealous of him. Judah is the one who went and slept with temple prostitutes, or so he thought. And this line of Judah is the one that God chose to work through, prophesying through his father Jacob in Genesis 49, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. This is why in Revelation 5, verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah because he descends from the line of Judah. The text goes on and you've got these two, Perez and Zerah. Children born to Judah by a Canaanite woman, Tamar, who dressed up as a temple prostitute in order to trick Judah into sleeping with her. And when it comes time for Tamar to give birth, There are twins in in her womb, and one of them sticks his hand out. And the maidservant says, well, this must be the firstborn. So she ties a little string around his wrist, but he pulls his wrist back in, and the other kid comes out first. Perez wanted to be the firstborn. He wanted to be the one, as much as a child in the womb can think through these things, wanted to be the child that came out first. And so He came out first, even though Zerah was the one who was on the way out first. Unexpected. And then you've got this woman here, Rahab. In verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute in the book of Joshua who hid the spies and was saved, by, saved from destruction, the destruction of the nations God displaced from the land of promise because of it. Hebrews 11.31 tells us, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Can you imagine the joy that would be yours if your name for the rest of history was followed by the prostitute? But this is Rahab's life. She is Rahab the prostitute. And you say to yourself, why are the scripture writers so fond of calling her the prostitute? Is it an insult? No. It is a magnification of the grace of God in her life. God will be gracious to all with faith like he was to Rahab the prostitute, who was also a Gentile, by the way. God's gracious formation of the line of promise was one that was mingled with the blood of prostitutes and Gentiles. And then you've got Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite, in verse 5. There weren't many people groups that the Hebrew peoples despised more than the Moabites. And yet God ensured her incorporation into the line of Jesus. Again, unexpected. And this formational period culminates or finds its pinnacle in the crowning of Israel's greatest king, David, and the establishment of the royal line. So you see, this first section of generations is stage one in the history of Israel, the formation of Israel. And God worked through this time of formation to continue the line of promise through whom the Messiah would come. Then you get to chapter 6b11. Point number three, God expectedly continues his gracious purpose. Take a look with me at 6b to 11. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Witness God unexpectedly continue his gracious purpose through this line. Even after so terrible a sin as David committed with Uriah's wife. Do you notice that? They don't, in verse 6, give you the name of the woman. They make sure that you remember the man who had been so grievously betrayed by his friend David. Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's most loyal protectors. Uriah was out at war for David. This was a travesty. And yet God didn't give up on David. He put David's son Solomon on the throne. And Solomon was the man who started out so well, and yet who, after a time, abandoned Yahweh, abandoned God in favor of worldly pleasures. And then Solomon had a son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the man whose foolishness divided an empire whose mother was an Ammonite, another group that the Israelites despised. He was a king who did evil, leading the nation to commit idolatry, the text says, on every high hill and under every green tree. He built altars to foreign gods on those high hills and under those green trees. And yet God, because of his faithfulness to the promises that he made to David, continued to, con- continued to maintain his gracious purpose. Then you've got Abijah, who was a wicked king. Then you've got Asaph, whom the text says he was, he was mostly good, but he wasn't wholly true to the Lord all his days. And then you've got Joram. Joram was an evil king. He married Ahab, Israel's most evil king's daughter. And you've got Uzziah. Uzziah did right for the most part. But as he kept on in his in his kingship he grew prideful and thought I can go and offer incense in the temple to the Lord myself I don't need to go through a priest and because of that he was struck with leprosy by the Lord and lost his crown unexpected then you've got Hezekiah the text says of Hezekiah that there was no one like him before him or after him Hezekiah was a good king. He did what was right. He held fast to the Lord. But when it came time for Hezekiah to die, as he lay on his deathbed, as the prophet came to him and said, Hezekiah, it's time for you to get all of your stuff in order. Hezekiah cried out to the Lord, you know I've been good. Because he was so scared to die. And the Lord gave him 15 extra years. And you know what he did with those extra 15 years? He made the two biggest blunders he could have ever made. It was in those, two, those 15 extra years when he started showing off all of Israel's riches and weapons and God then said, because you have done this, you will be carried away by the Babylonians. It was under Hezekiah that the prophecy about the, the captivity came. And he had a child during this time, during this extra 15 years. A man named Manasseh. And you see Manasseh is the next in the line here. Manasseh was an exceedingly wicked king. He led the nation into performing despicable practices. So the text says he made altars to Baal in the temple of God itself. He burned his son as an offering to foreign gods. He consulted fortune tellers and mediums. Just so you know, the text of the scripture hates the consultation of fortune tellers and mediums. It was one of the, one of the things that an Israelite could do that would give them the death penalty. He shed so much blood in his own land. On the text in Second Kings says that under Manasseh, the nation committed more evil than the nations that God had driven out before them. He did, however, at the end of his life, repent. And this chief of sinners became the object of God's mercy. And then Jeconiah, the king, carried away by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so you see, here, with all of this wickedness, God brought the Babylonians to take his people captive. But he had maintained the promise. He had maintained his gracious purpose through this line because with each successive king, with each one of them living a life of wickedness, God in his holiness would have been just to say, that's it. I'm wiping you guys all out. But he didn't. Because the God that you serve, the God who loves you, the God who loves me is a gracious God. But how would these promises now be fulfilled during the dark time of the third stage of Israel's life? The Babylonian captivity. See, God's unexpected preservation, that's point number four, in verses 12 to 17. And after the deportation deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiud the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok. And Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So in the hopeless days of exile, God continued to preserve his line. There are a few names in this list or in this section of the genealogy that we do know. Zerubbabel, for example. He was one who helped in the rebuilding of the temple during the time of Ezra. But from Zerubbabel's son Abiud to Joseph's father Jacob... We don't know of these people from any other source. Matthew, obviously, as a tax collector, would have been very familiar with genealogical records so that he knew how much to tax each person. They were held at the temple. But the records that Matthew had access to were destroyed along with the temple in A.D. 70. But God continued his line, preserving it. Now, I want you to notice the line that Jesus descends from. Is it spotless? No, it is not. Far from it. It is not a line of perfect people. It is actually a line of murderers, Gentiles, cheaters, liars, adulterers, and cowards. Why? To bring us hope. God's plans aren't always moved forward by great people. They're not always moved forward by the holiest people in the group. But God's plans are moved forward by people like you and me. Like you and I. People who, if any of us were written into the Bible with the perspective given to the writers of the Bible by God, would look a lot like these men and women. The genealogy arrives At its centerpiece when it comes to Jesus who is called the Christ. Jesus, the legal heir of the throne of Israel. Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise to David. The king is here. And now upon faith, your name is included in the line of salvation that springs from The work of the king by faith in him. And you, with all of the sordid details of your life, are a part of his salvation upon faith in this king. I thank God that he delights in saving sinners. Because if he didn't, none of us would be saved. I thank God that he maintained by grace this plan to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you see how God has maintained that through the three stages of Israel's history. Their formation, their kingdom, and their exile. Each stage has witnessed God's gracious work in preserving the line. So now, the stage is set. The line is chosen and has been protected. The king is promised. Now, how will he arrive? He will arrive by... Number five, the virgin's conception. Take a look with me at verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. And you can just imagine the questions surrounding this scene. Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph. And you can imagine Mary pleading with Joseph. I swear! I didn't! I didn't do anything wrong! I'm still a virgin, I'm still pure, believe me! But the very nature of this pregnancy is just too incredible... For Joseph to believe apart from some sort of revelation by God Himself. And so we can't fault Joseph too much for starting the ball rolling in terms of the divorce proceedings. Now you may be asking yourself, divorce proceedings, but they're just betrothed. Or they're just, they're just, uh, yeah, betrothed, it says. Betrothal in this day was not like our engagements now. You can break off an engagement for the smallest of reasons in this time period. A betrothal was a legal contract between two families and it could only be broken through divorce. So while there was a year of betrothal and the woman lived in her parents' house and the, and the man lived up in his parents' house, they lived apart from one another. After the year, they would actually get married and then they would know each other. But the pair hadn't consummated their relationship, but still Joseph had to set in motion divorce proceedings. But Joseph is a just man. Joseph is a righteous man. Joseph is a man of character. And you know, Joseph just may be, according to this genealogy, the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And so he resolves to spare Mary the harsh realities of an adulterous woman in that day, which would have been death by stoning. Joseph doesn't understand that God is at work bringing about the fulfillment of all of his promises in this child. This child would be fully human because he was birthed from Mary, but also fully divine because the Holy Spirit is the one who came upon Mary to ensure her pregnancy. And because Joseph is the father, Jesus is also the legal heir to the throne of David, the rightful king of Israel. Not a son of David, but the son of David. And because this child is fully human, and because this child is fully divine, he is our perfect substitute. He is the only one who can take the wrath that is necessary, the wrath that is due against us for our sins on his shoulders because he is divine. He is the only one who can bear them in our place. Anyone else, anyone at all would be absolutely destroyed by the wrath of God, but not the divine son of God. He can deal with the penalty for our sin. He is also our perfect representative because he took on flesh, because he walked this earth. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our infirmities. He knows how we think and how we feel and how we operate. And so as he sits at the right hand of God the Father right now, he can say, I know what they're going through. I've been there. I've felt that temptation. I've felt that one. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. Remember, I died on the cross for them. Remember what I did. And he represents you before the Father as the one who bore your sin and your shame because he was the only one who could. So he is also our perfect mediator. And one day he will come back and usher into the mansions of glory he himself has prepared Those who put their faith in Him in this lifetime. In other words, the son that Mary will bear, He will save His people from their sins. He will not be a warrior king bent on liberating Israel from foreign rule. He will be the one who deals with the great barrier between God and man. The real barrier barrier between God and man. The one that we always shove to the background, but the one that we need to have brought back to the forefront because it is the main issue. The separation from God.